Welcome, welcome. We th this is the preferred lighting. Is that is that what we want? We like that lighting. All right, welcome. Uh, we're in, we're we're in another week of Bible interpretation, and I think we're in an exciting week. Maybe they say that every week, but uh, I, th I think this is an exciting week. We're going to be looking at the Psalms, the Book of the Psalms. Hopefully. Um, you have read bits and pieces of them at least. If not, I would encourage you. Uh, they are rich. They are, uh, you can always go back to them and mine their depths. Um, and so this is, I think this is a great opportunity not only to understand how to read them, but they're so helpful devotionally um, once, once we can understand them properly. So um, we're going to do sort of a basic how to interpret them. And then I want to spend some time, hopefully get some discussion at the end, about uh, taking some examples and some of the hard ones, you know, how do we fit them into the context and try to understand uh, them properly. All right, this is all on your website if you, uh, if you want to look back. And we're just going to walk through it, and then we'll talk about those examples. Some basic definitions, generally you can categorize the Psalms as, uh, most broadly, as Psalms of lament or Psalms of praise. And... Uh, from 1 to 150, there's 150 psalms, there's a general movement of more and more laments at the beginning. So if you, if you feel like, man, David is always down and you're just starting out, it generally moves to praise and thanksgiving. Um, that's not hard and fast. There's, there's millions of different ways to classify them, but um, generally that, that's, the, that's the case. There are more lament psalms than any other type, um, which is very striking. Um, I, d I just have here, note how this changed our stereotype of the superficially happy Christian. Um, there's such encouragement to be truly honest with God. David over and over is crying out to God. Um, he seems like he is in despair. He seems like he's hopeless often, but he's not hopeless because he's bringing his hopelessness to God in his lament, um, in his sense of persecution, sense of loneliness, sense of being crushed under the weight of enemies, um, under the weight of his own sin. Um, and, and always, though, those laments end up going to praise and thanksgiving. Um, actually, I should have an asterisk. So Psalm, I think it's 88. Is that right? 88 is the only one that doesn't. Um, that doesn't end that way. Um, but all the other ones, there's often a very stark move from lament, but God, you are. You are the king. Your love is steadfast. Um, he, he is able to lift himself out. Even if he can't lift himself out physically and in reality, he's able to just say the words. And so this is an incredible tool for us to if we are in despair and we are feeling hopeless, even to just read these words as the external word of God coming to us. When we don't feel like these words are ours, we read them and we can meditate on them and they become ours and they become internalized in our hearts, in our minds. So uh, to, to be able to meditate on them becomes so powerful. Um, so I would encourage you to do that. Um, why did that happen? 
click means a new page, apparently. Um, most often, the author is David, but not always. Uh, sometimes it's meant for a corporate worship service in the temple. Um, other times, it's simply an individual's prayer. Sometimes we can know the context. Sometimes we can't. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it even moves. You can even see times where it moves from one person, plural. He says, I, and then it moves to we. Um, it's, it's almost like we're getting a glimpse of the temple service. Um, so if you have a good study Bible, that, that can usually help you understand the context of where it was originally. Um, 41% of all direct quotes from the New Testament come from the Psalms, which is striking. Um, and Jesus himself alludes to them more than 50 times. Jesus, like, I think this is true, but don't take this as absolute truth, but he likely would have had them all memorized. It would have, it's also a tradition of, of the church uh, to have been going through them all the time, going through them, having them memorized. They become the words of our prayers back to God. It's like the word of God becomes our words as we pray. And even thinking about the union that we have with Christ, that's one way that we experience it. That these are, this is God's word, spoken by humans, and it's God's word to us, and now we, being united to him, end up praying these words back to him in this almost interchange, this participation, right? This communion um, as we're drawing closer to him. So that's what we see Jesus do a lot of times. Um, that's basic intro. Any, anybody want to interact questions? There's probably not a lot to interact with yet. Um, so I want to deal with some of the key interpretive issues. So usually if we're misreading the psalm, it's because we haven't understood the covenants or we haven't understood the place of the land. In the, old, in the Old Testament. Some of this is, this is going to be a review, but it's important to keep this in mind when we're reading the Psalms, okay? Because originally they're written in the Davidic uh, context, okay? Whether it's written by David or, or someone else, the sons of Asaph, they're still written in that context. So it's important to keep this in mind, um, especially when we're, we're reading um, all the blessings that are to come, which can often differ sharply from what the New Covenant blessings are. And we're going to talk about that in one specific example in Psalm 91. But, um, so the Davidic covenant, as you, you may already know, uh, was temporal and political. This promise to David had an aspect where it applied to the political nation state, Israel. And so the enemies of God were political and flesh and blood, whereas now our enemies are spiritual. And so we'll see an example of that, but that's the biggest question that I think... I get the most if someone's reading the Psalms, like, how can I actually pray this? Who are these enemies that I'm supposed to have that I want to die? Um, well, you don't have the same type of enemies that David did, right? And you can't say the same type of things, but as we'll see, you are going to be able to still pray the prayers. You're going to be able to pray the Psalms because we are engaged in a spiritual warfare. It's like what David and Israel were after was a, was a type, as we've, as we've talked about in the past. It was, it was a, think of it as a drama that gets fulfilled in Christ and takes a new nature now until the new heavens and new earth come and, and sort of fulfill and the whole world becomes Eden in Israel. Um, so if the psalmist is calling down punishment and curses, we always have to understand them through Christ. 
This is what we hopefully can do with all of Scripture, understanding them in, with, and through Christ. So either the curses are ones that we deserve, that Christ took on, so we can, we can see them as Jesus praying, this is what we deserve as sinful, but he's absorbing them in our place. Or curses that our spiritual enemies deserve, even as no person is theoretically too far apart from God to be saved. We should still be just as angry at sin and evil, just in the right context. For similar reasons, Christians don't engage in holy war, although we do fight spiritual warfare, which is actually more serious. So a lot of times we think Christian, the new covenant becomes nicer. You know, the old, the old covenant is violent and vicious and mean, and then, and then God becomes nice. That's, that's the sort of t stereotype. Um, that's just not, it's just not true. And one, one helpful discipline, one helpful uh, way to meditate on the Psalms is to try, we, we don't just want to love what God loves, we want to hate what God hates. And, and to try to understand what that means, where that fits. Um, we do want to hate the sin that is, that is putting us in bondage. We do want to hate the evil that is keeping us from God. We do want to hate the evil and sin in other people's lives. Right? And so this can help us fight that can help us pray against it in a warfare sense. That may make some of us uncomfortable. We don't often talk about, you know, the Christian life as a battle, but it really is. And it's all over Scripture. It is a battle. It's just a battle we know we've already won in Christ. So that even gives us even more confidence when we're praying against the enemies in this way, that we know the enemies are going to fall. All of God's enemies will be subdued, and everyone will bow down to Christ. Um, let's, does anybody have any, any issues there, or questions? Again, we're still at the sort of abstract, general, conceptual level. We, we'll look at one, an example of that, but... Is that clear? All right. Um, so another way to properly interpret um, the context of the Psalms is to properly understand the place of the land, because so much of the Psalms are about the promise of the land and also the enemies that are going to be destroyed from the land, the protection of the land. You know, do we just ignore those? Do we just move on? Is, is, is that geography important in any way anymore? All right. Um, and so we want to understand this in the New Testament context. What does the land have to do? We don't ignore it. It stands for something. Okay? And we have to understand what it means. So it stands for a few different things. One, you can say spiritually. I don't know if these terms are that helpful, but um, spiritually it refers to Christ's person himself. So there's a sense in which the, the land of promise, um, the place, think of the temple, um, the, the land was supposed to be this holy, clean place. Jesus does that. Jesus becomes that. He becomes Israel. Okay? He becomes the place of access to God. So it refers to Christ himself in a way. Okay? 
Right. So Israel, Israel become, Jesus becomes the new Israel. So when I say land, I mean Israel. This is what I'm talking about. Right. The geography that's often being talked about in the Psalms. So Jesus becomes... Right. So what happens in, in Christ is that it gets transferred in these ways. Right. Another way is that transcendentally it gets... Refer, now it refers to the heavenly Jerusalem. So lots of ways that the promised land was referred to in the Old Testament, we can understand that now as the heavenly Jerusalem. That was meant to point us to the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay? Um, you know, this, this is not so much the Psalms, but the New Testament will refer to us as exiles, basically portraying us as wandering in the wilderness before Israel gets to the promised land meaning we are exiles here on earth waiting for heaven or if Jesus comes back, waiting for the new heavens and new earth to come down. Right. So the promised land that David would have been praying for, we can pray for in the same way. We just have to understand it's talking about heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, or the heavenly temple that gets talked about in Hebrews. All right. Uh, yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah, absolutely. 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 So we're waiting, we're waiting for uh, the temple to go global in a sense, that it's going to cover the land. It's going to cover all the earth, right, for the glory of God to cover all the earth. So we're not waiting to escape, but we will be experiencing the promises of the land in heaven until that is fulfilled on earth, right? And so we're, we're praying for the kingdom of God that is already in heaven on earth, for it, to, for it to come true and spread out, which is basically the eschatological is what that means there. Um, typological, see if this is helpful to, to situate ourselves. How do we read these issues that come up throughout the Psalms? Slavery in Egypt and redeemed through the Red Sea um, gets understood as slavery of sin and we're redeemed by the cross. We've been delivered by the Passover land, the Passover lamb, uh, at the Red Sea, Christ has become our lamb, uh, and the Spirit is appearing as the wind. Uh, Israel's baptism with Moses in the sea is equated to the church's baptism in Christ through water. Um, so this story becomes our story in all these ways. Israel feeds on manna and drinks from a rock. The church feeds on Christ. We are tested in the wilderness before inheriting the land. The church is testing out until the internal inheritance. And Israel finds physical rest, but it's incomplete, and so the church finds rest in Christ. All right, um, let's, get, let's get to understanding some more specific texts. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Acts 2. Uh, 
there are other places we can look, like Romans 1, Hebrews 1, um, lots of the Gospels. But in 2, 25 to 35, this is Pentecost. Peter is preaching about Christ. Starting in verse 25. For David says concerning him, meaning Jesus, now he quotes a psalm, Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's the end of the quote of the psalm. Now listen to what Peter says about this psalm that David wrote. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is set with us to this day. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter does an amazing thing there with that psalm. Did you catch it all? He says, this is what David said about Jesus. Quotes him, and he says, well, we know David died. So surely that psalm can't ultimately apply to David. Because the psalm said, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. We know David died. His tomb is here with us. We also know that God swore to David an oath that he would always have someone on his throne. And we know that God's promise isn't going to be made void. So what do you do? He says it's about Christ. He was talking about Jesus. That's the one who was not abandoned. That's the one who's... Uh, um, that's the Holy One, in verse 27, who will not see corruption. All right? Um, any questions on that interpretive move? Yeah, Denny? That's a good question. And that's, that's where maybe some people are going to differ. We're going to... I would say we need to be very close to the text and what exactly is being saying. It, it is saying that David was a prophet, and it's saying that David knew that God swore an oath that there would always be a descendant on his throne, and he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, which is that word Christ, the Holy One. Um, so... In one sense, yeah, but it's a question of what does that mean? Does that mean that he had a picture of Jesus and he knew that this is the way that it was going to happen? I'm not sure that's necessary, right? But it, does, but it does say that David knew that his covenant would be fulfilled, that he knew that the Messiah would be fulfilled, that the, there would be a son of David always on his throne. 
right? Um, Rico? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. The important point here, as far as understanding the Psalms, is seeing how this gets applied to Christ. All right? So if we're to read all of the Psalms through Christ, uh, how do we do that? If we're considering the unity of the head of Christ with the body of Christ, we really need to read the Psalms under this sort of total Christ understanding of who he is. All right? What I mean by that is either the Psalms are things that we cannot honestly say without Christ making us righteous. All right? So that's, those are things like, God save me because I've been so righteous. And then he'll outright say that. And then you'll think, well, I can't say that, obviously. Or you'll think, yeah, that's true. Look how righteous I am. Both of them are wrong unless we say them in Christ. So we can say, yes, God, you do consider me righteous in Christ. You have made me righteous. So that becomes our prayer in that way. We don't have to be a hypocrite. Or they are prayers that Christ cries out to God on our behalf to be with us and and forgive us. Psalm 13 is an example. Really, that song of confession comes from Psalm 13 is, How long, O Lord, will you leave me forever? How long, O oh Lord? All right. Picture that as Christ praying that in our place, which is also an example that Christ identifies with us and our sins as on the cross in Psalm 22. So on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22 and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus being forsaken in our place, And yet when we pray that, we pray it even in a different way than Jesus prayed it because Jesus really was forsaken on the cross in our place. We now know that we are never going to be fully forsaken. And that psalm, if you read all of that psalm, it's really an amazing psalm, 22. It ends up with the worship. Jesus ends up leading us in worship in the congregation with our brothers and sisters. It's really an amazing psalm. Um. And we're going to see some more examples of that when we look at the examples. Interrupt me if we need to stop. Otherwise, uh, these three main questions can help us when you're reading the psalm. How is this used in the original Old Covenant context? How does this relate to Jesus? And how does this relate to a Christian who's in Christ and the church as the body of Christ? So before we get to some examples, no questions? Yeah, Fred. Yeah, I think New Testament interpreting the Psalms and the fact that Jesus and other places are saying all of Scripture is about me. So it's, I would say it's both. Yeah, Lane. Right. 
I'm, I'm not quite sure how to answer that other than either one, a long apologetic discussion about what Christ did and who he is. So I'd point them to Christ. Because that's really trying to, you're asking like how, how can we say that someone who's only reading the Old Testament is not getting it all? And that's a fundamental, I think, Christian uh, truth, is that if you're only reading the Old Testament and stopping, you've missed what God has done, and you're automatically going to misunderstand the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Because Christ gives us the proper interpretation of it. So you may want to go to things like Psalm 22 and Psalm 16, which are, which are there are some psalms that are more clearly about what Jesus did and who he is. And that's what he does even with Psalm 110. When he, he, he quotes that to the, to the Pharisees a lot. He says, how do you guys make sense of this? And they can't make sense of it. And it's because he's the Messiah. It's he's the only one that David can say, my Lord, too. Um, even though the Messiah is going to be the son of David. Um, things like that. Yeah, Preston. right duke it out that's your answer yeah absolutely absolutely yeah that's there's so much of scripture about that should we move to examples all right psalm 91 is our first example psalm 91 this is uh, particularly interesting to me because i was at a big old conference in college of a prosperity gospel preacher who uh, used this basically to, to support all sorts of material and earthly blessings that we should get because of this. And I would say he totally misread it. All right? So let's see how we can understand Psalm 91. Beautiful, beautiful psalm. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. 
on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Incredible psalm. I would encourage you to, to meditate it on, on it often. What are, would be some bad conclusions from this psalm? What would be some misreadings of it? Any ideas? Yeah. Keep us from all harm and difficulty. All the time. It seems to be what it's saying. Where is that quoted in the New Testament? Satan. Satan quotes this psalm. Which part? Uh, verse 11. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up. He tells Jesus to jump down from the temple because you're not going to be hurt. It seems like we should be able to do that, too, if we're going to read that in such a poor way. We should be able to jump down from the roof of CPC because no evil will befall you. What's a better way to read that? How do we read this in Christ? Okay. Okay. God will protect your spiritual union. What's that? The enemy is sin. Okay, so what are you saying? What's the promise here? Okay, okay, okay. Yep, raised up. Cam Cameron? Yes. Say more. Yeah. Yeah, remember all four of those. So it's not just, it's not that we're saying this is true but only spiritually, although we're, we're saying that as far as this life. So we, sh we are able to claim these promises and say there is nothing that's going to befall you if you are in Christ, right? But then we're going to say even more eternally, if we're talking about eternal life, we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth, when that happens, the kingdom of David will be global, Right? And we'll be able to say this literally in a physical way. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Raj? I think it says something about all four of these and who we are in Christ. Mm. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. And we are in the kingdom of Christ that is fully realized in heaven, that is becoming realized on earth. 
and will become at the second coming fully. And that's where the ultimate victory, ultimate power. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure. Perfect, Fred. Thank you. That's what I wanted to do. Romans 8. Romans 8. Some people's favorite passage, starting in verse 31. I'll give you one second. But he ends up quoting a psalm in verse 36 that often, I've even skipped over this psalm if I'm reading it and proclaiming it because it doesn't make sense. How does this fit? But we're going to see how it actually does fit and really is amazing when we understand what he's doing with that psalm. All right. Romans 8, starting at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bear any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's a ridiculously amazing uh, passage of its own. But let's see what he's doing with Psalm 44, which is what he quotes. So if you hold your hand there, if you have an old school Bible, you can hold your hand there and go back to Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is a psalm of, uh, he, it, the writer is in distress because we don't have time to read it all, but the psalmist is saying, God, where are you? And he starts off by saying, we have heard all these great things that you've done to our ancestors. We've heard all these great ways. You've saved them. Where are you now? You've rejected us. We haven't done anything wrong. But you still have rejected us. Even in verse 23, it ends by saying, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Rise, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Where are you? Okay. Paul is quoting verse 22. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So in the context of the psalm, he's saying, we are being massacred here, God. Where are you? We have been rejected. We are, we are being persecuted to such a degree, it's as if we are sheep on the way to be slaughtered. So it's a very hopeless psalm in a lot of ways. Why in the world would Paul quote that in Romans 8, in this most triumphant passage about the love of God. Anybody want to give it a shot? Is he totally misreading Psalm 44? As some people may say, Raj? He's saying this is the way life is. 
Yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Amen. He's saying that Jesus is the answer to this cry. The cry of Psalm 44, rise, come to our help, where are you? Paul is saying we have finally heard the once for all answer to that in Christ. So this may be the experience of our life, but we can now declare that nothing can separate us from the love of God, even if we feel like we're being led as sheep to the slaughter. You see how he, he, he doesn't misread the psalm. He shows us how Christ fulfills the psalm, and that apart from Christ, we're stuck in Psalm 44, and we have no hope. We're still waiting for God to answer. Rico? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. When it feels like we are being, we are encountering all of those things that he listed, nakedness, persecution, danger, sword. No, in those things we are more than conquerors. Not just they're going to end, you know, not that they're not that bad. We're more than conquerors because they are powerless to take us from the love of God in Christ. They can't do what they think they're doing, right? Sin always thinks it's a lot more powerful than it is. Satan always thinks he's a lot more powerful than he is. But it can't do the one thing that it's trying to convince you that it can, which is take us from the bosom of the Father. Take us from God's presence. So amazing. We're officially out of time, but I don't see any other kids, so let's keep going. Um, Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross. Jesus often quotes Psalm 110 when he's tricking the Pharisees. Um, anybody have a have something you guys want to ask about or? Yeah. You mean if they say where it's quoted from, or? Yeah. Usually, I mean, hopefully it'll just have a footnote and say they're quoting from this psalm, and you can go back and read it. Um, and I think with the Romans eight passage, it's very helpful to see the context of the psalm, because normally they're quoting one verse, assuming the rest of the context. And so if you just try to understand it from that one verse, it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But once you see the full context, then it does. So another one of the bigger, uh, I think it's 110, but it might not be. Not only um, the Lord says to my Lord, but there's another one about the cornerstone. Has what, what was discarded has become the cornerstone. The stumbling block has become the cornerstone. It often gets quoted throughout the New Testament. The stumbling block originally seems to come from this temple context of when they were building the temple, there was like this big rock that they didn't know what to do with that they discarded and put to the side. It ends up becoming the cornerstone, like the thing that was going to keep the whole temple structure together. When David says that in the Psalms, he's talking about Israel's enemies, 
saying, saying the enemies thought they were about to defeat Israel, but Israel now is triumphing. They've become the cornerstone. God, God ends up prevailing. Then Jesus and the New Testament writers quotes it and sa- usually says, to you, false Israel now have become Israel's enemies because you have stumbled over Christ, the very one who is now the cornerstone of Israel. So that's another way where the context gets, gets totally changed. Press Absolutely. Hebrews 1 is a great example where he just sort of rattles off a bunch of psalms to talk about the lordship of Christ, the kingship of Christ, that Christ is better than all these. These were all talking about Christ. He quotes Psalm 22 later on in Psalm 22. After my God, my God forsaken me, he quotes, I will tell of my brothers in the congregation, I will lead them in worship. And he's saying that's what Jesus is doing. He's leading us in worship because he's gone through being forsaken and has been raised. All right, let's pray. God, you are good and holy and majestic, and we marvel at who you are, all that you have done in Christ. We thank you for your word, the depths of your word, that we get to read it and study it, and we get to commune with you through it. Um, So we do pray that your spirit would lead us to the word, um, that it would become a way for us to to meditate upon your truth um, and to grow more deeply in the gospel. So we do pray for um, our unity and our love that this time of cafe would be Uh, glorifying to you that you would bless the food to our bodies and join us to one another in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.